Welcome to Digging In, where we provide a front row seat to politics in New Hampshire. I'm State Representative Anita Burroughs. I'm here to bring you the inside track on the people and politics that are shaping our state. Today, I'm speaking with Representative Steve Shirtliff, who served as Speaker of the House from 2018 to 2020 and has been a member of the New Hampshire State House of Representatives since 2004. We will get a front row seat in the House as Steve shares insight into the Speaker's role and what goes on behind the scenes at the State House. Steve's bipartisanship and good humor have made him a favorite of reps on both sides of the aisle. He has more than a few good stories to share. This is Anita Burroughs. I want to welcome you to another edition of Digging In. I'm here with Steve Shirtliff, who has been uh, in the House since 2004, and he's held all four senior positions in the House. Um, He was House Minority Leader, Majority Leader, Speaker, and Speaker Emeritus. First of all, I want to say that Steve is one of my favorite people in the House for a number of reasons. Uh, He was the the speaker when I first took office, and I really admired the way you conducted yourself. Um, I used to tell people that if you walked into the room and you didn't know if Steve was a Democrat or Republican, you really wouldn't be able to know by the way he conducts things in the House. So um, I appreciate that. And I also always appreciated your self-deprecating humor. You never made fun of anyone else. You only made fun of yourself. Um, I like to model model that. I don't always <laughs> succeed, but I try to just focus it on myself and not other people in the house. So um, I thought it would be interesting to talk about what we don't see. We can talk a little bit about the role of the speaker. What is that like to manage 400 people um, as speaker? It's a challenge at times. It's almost like a conductor of an orchestra. You've got to get everybody in sync and playing the same music. They may not agree with the tune we're playing, but they've got to all be in rhythm with each other. And, um, you know, it's, it's surprising that I speak because I tend to be a little bit shy. And um, and I gave this advice to my friend, uh, Sharon Packett, when he became speaker. When you first start as speaker, don't be yourself. Be yourself as an actor playing the role of the speaker. Because there are going to be people in the house who will try to bait you to have you lose your temper, get mad, and don't give in. Just keep smiling. And people always say, gee, you're always smiling. Well, you know. well I think back to an old um, Garfield the Cat cartoon. And Garfield, uh, the, Odie the dog says to Garfield, every time I see you smiling, I get nervous. And Garfield said, every time I see you get nervous, it makes me smile. And I... And I remember that. And so you play this role for a while, then eventually just your own personality comes out and who you are. But it gives you just those rough spots. Yeah, I only saw you lose your temper once. And you probably don't remember what it was. It was when we had a vote to name a street or something against a fallen soldier. And um, it was a, um, a voice vote. And one lone voice yelled no. And um, you just were rightfully furious. I remember that. Um, And it turned out that the guy hadn't heard what was going on and he was being funny. And and he did get up and apologize, which is, yeah, which is always, um, I love apologies because everyone claps and it's taken sincerely. It heals a lot of wounds. That's for sure. And as a Vietnam veteran, that really upset me that, and then to find out after, you know, when he apologized, it meant a lot to me that he did. But I think it's like two or three times I've ever really gotten mad in the house. 
You yelled at me once, but we won't go there. <laughs> I got out of my seat. Yeah, I didn't realize that we were still in voting mode. And I got up to use the restroom and you said, why does the member rise? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I ran back as quickly as I could, sat, sat down. I was like, I guess I'm not going out of the room right now, but I, I forgive you for that. It scared me. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about behind the scenes, because even today, this is my third term. I don't really know what goes on behind the scenes um, with negotiations. And I see uh, minority leader Matt Willem working with both Sherm Packard, the speaker, and Jason Osborne, um, the majority leader. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, actually, uh, being the speaker and on the floor is about 10% of what you do as speaker. Uh, every day you've got meetings with different people. And um, you're meeting with the minority, with the majority leader. You get people from nonprofits coming in to talk to you about legislation, commissioners from various departments talking about legislation. One day I had a call from security. They said two homeless people were down in, at the Park Street door, the back door, and they wanted to talk with you. But you want me just to send them on their way? And I said, no, bring them on up. I'll talk to them. And I spent about 40 minutes speaking with them. And it was good. They told me about the problems they were having. So a lot of different things come up and you can't really plan for it because you don't know what the day will always bring. You have a schedule and an agenda. You have various meetings yourself, like rules and facilities and others. But uh, the, every day is a little bit different. So could tell us about the negotiating process, because it's something I'm certainly still learning um, in my committee. Maybe you have a bill that you could use as point of reference that there's a bill that the Dems really want to get passed. Republicans maybe are unsure about it or don't want to pass it. And and you really want to get it through. So how does that negotiating process work? At one time, I was the chair of the House Criminal Justice Committee. And we had a bill called Senate Bill 500. And what it said is no longer could prisoners max out sort of their full sentence and leave the New Hampshire State Prison without any parole or any guidance that just off into the sunset. And as a U.S. former U.S. Marshal, I had a prisoner tell me they'd rather do time in jail than to do, but he said time on paper with a parole officer. And so what this bill said, no more maxing out. Every inmate has to get out 90 days before their sentence expires, and they'll have intense um, supervision while they're out. So they don't commit another crime and uh, come back to the prison. Republicans were opposed to it. You know, we're letting these criminals out on the street early. And so I talked to them and I said, we're spending 33000 a year to warehouse prisoners at the New Hampshire State Prison. Isn't it better to have them out early back, providing for the families, getting jobs instead of the families having to get some form of public assistance and getting reacclimated to civilian life instead of us subsidizing everything. And they said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, why should we be spending that money? You know, yeah, and so they supported the bill. And of course, Democrats saw the positive part of the bill to get people out and make sure they didn't go back on drugs and make sure that they were taking care of their families, that they got jobs, that they got training they may need. It was a social program in some extent, to some extent. So it was a win-win for both sides. They could both see a benefit to their philosophy. And we had a unanimous vote out of the committee and it passed on the floor. Yeah, I think you you alluded to what I, I think about going into Commerce Committee where I serve is, and or when you're speaking in the on the floor in favor or against a bill is I always try to put on a Republican hat 
and say what, you know, what matters to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle and speak to that um, rather than speaking as a Democrat. And I, I think that's really helpful. And, and I, I think it's always helpful to try to figure out what what our colleagues are thinking and why they feel that way about a bill. So you, you just exactly. That. Yeah, that, you yeah. know that's the way to do it, Anita. Because yeah, every bill you can always find something that the other side is going to like about it. And when you go to the floor, you know your your caucus will be with you. It's the other caucus you got to bring along. And when you can pass bipartisan legislation, that's really a plus for everybody. Right. No, I agree with you. Um, what was your greatest challenge as a House Speaker, and um, was there a day that you particularly remember as being challenging? Well, there's two challenging parts. One was the 19-hour session where we started at 9 o'clock one morning and went to 4 a.m. the next morning. And uh, what had happened, that deadline for acting on bills was um, that Thursday. And uh, so I asked the Republican, the late Speaker Dick Hench, if they would extend the deadline to the following Tuesday. So we could, because of COVID, we were getting backed up. We weren't having sessions as often as we normally would. And he wanted three things from me. One was uh, four people that were reprimanded, the reprimands be dismissed. He wanted my promise that I'd support a tax uh, decrease for businesses. And there was a third thing I can't remember. And I said, Mr. Leader, some things I can't do and some things I won't do. I can't guarantee I can't do that. Well, then we'll be here as long as it takes. I won't agree to extend the deadline. And so we went through that long night. And I had one member of our caucus tell me, I can't stay. I'm so afraid of COVID. I've got lung problems. I'm not going to be here for the whole session. I can't do it. And I said, I understand. You know, take care of yourself. It's understandable. And all day and all night long, I looked over and that person was still there. And it actually, to think about it now, it kind of brings tears to my eyes. Yeah. They stayed to the very end till 4 a.m. And I asked them, I said, I'm so appreciative of just staying. And so that I couldn't leave. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it to my constituents. I couldn't do it to you. And all night long, Dick Kinch would walk up and say, Mr. Speaker, look how tired your caucus is getting. And we have some older people. Give me what I want. Give me what our caucus wants. And we can all go home now. We'll come back on Tuesday. I said, Dick, I can't do it. I just can't do it. And so we finished. We, our caucus stayed strong. The House and, and Republican members stayed. And they, you know, they could have left some of them, but uh, they stayed. That was... Uh, one of the cha most challenging session. I remember that so well. I remember you came into the caucus to ask us what you said. This is what I said to the speaker. How do you all feel about staying till 4 a.m.? I remember everyone cheered. You know, yeah. it was like, no, we're going. This is the right thing. We're going to stay. And I thought, oh my god, how am I going to stay up till 4 a.m.? I a lot of us had a nine. Some of us had a 9 a.m. meeting, a county meeting the next day, so we got like three hours sleep. But, but I mean, I, I felt proud to be there. And I was really proud that we all stayed. I was so proud of our caucus. Like I said, we had a lot of people that are older, even older than me, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, they stayed right to the end. I, I could see some of them were sleeping. They were so exhausted, but they stayed. And that one member that said, I can't stay because I'm so afraid of COVID. And they stayed. And that really, I was so proud yeah. of them. I was so yeah. proud of our caucus. And I was proud of the Republicans who stayed as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I've never eaten so much pizza in my life. Oh, my goodness. I know. <laughs> they had out so, so that we could stay awake. Um, so another thing I want to talk to you about that 20, the session in 2020 to 2022 um, was a very discouraging time for a lot of us. Um, in yes. fact, on my um, 
on Commerce Committee, I think people were so down on the breakdown of bipartisanship that we had most of the Democratic people on my committee left. They said, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. And um, it, it kind of paralleled what hap- what's happening in the U.S. House of Representatives right now. It's this, this extremist part of our of our house in both Washington and here, I felt was very disruptive. And it was I, I saw a real breakdown in the bipartisanship. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Well, I think we had two problems. Uh, you know, Rennie Cushion was our leader and I loved Rennie. When I was speaker, I named him chair of the criminal justice C- committee, you know, and on my wall, I got the flag that flew over the state house the day I was uh, elected speaker that Rennie got for me. So, but Rennie got more sick uh, with uh, his cancer and he wasn't, eventually wasn't able to attend. David Cody was a deputy and David had serious health issues and he couldn't come in. So I think there was somewhat of a vacuum in our House Democratic leadership and it showed. And, you know, I tried to help whenever I could. Uh, but I think that was a problem. We were meeting a lot of the time in Bedford and uh, Republicans here were so disruptive and so disrespectful to uh, Speaker Packard down there, you know, kicking around a, a soccer ball and uh, uh, just Here. the behavior. Here. Well, first of all, that was yeah. probably the biggest challenge I had as Speaker when COVID came in March of uh, 2019, trying to find a place where we could meet for our sessions. And uh, University of New Hampshire was so good in letting us use uh, the Woodmore Center. Uh, but we had problems there. Um, I found out some of our members of the house were drinking beer, sneaking it in and drinking it. Uh, we found trash can full of beer cans. And then I got a call one night from the president at UNH and said, uh, Mr. Speaker, I got some bad news for you. And I said, what is it? He goes, uh, the student Senate is meeting the day after tomorrow. And there's going to be a vote to ban the New Hampshire house from coming to the Whittemore Center anymore because of the behavior of the members at Whittemore. But we've had problem with members smoking on school property, which is not allowed. Uh, one professor told a group, of, well, a group of House members, you're not allowed to speak, smoke on the campus. And they were very rude, very disruptive. So I said to the president, I said, could I go and speak to the Senate? And he goes, yeah, if you want to. And so I did, and I explained 90%, 95% of our House members are very decent people and are trying to do the right thing. But every group, there's always that three, four, five percent that rules don't mean a thing to them. I said, you know, we have to deal with what the people send us. And I, most of the time, they're excellent representatives, but there's that few. We have really no place right now to go but here. We, we have that obligation to the people we serve to get these laws passed. We've got deadlines. Uh, the university has been so good to us, providing meals, ambulance service, everything. Please, I know you've got a motion that's going to come up. I would ask you to vote it down and let us finish this session. And we'll continue to do whatever we can to police that very few that are causing so much disruption. And happily, they voted the motion down and we finished out the session there. But uh, Right. That was a yeah. challenge. Yeah, that was that was a, quite a time. Um, the other the other day, I, I that was actually when um, when I think Speaker Packard started when we had what I call karaoke uh, legislation, where we sat in our cars and voted all day. I was in right. my car with my transportation. I was in my car for eleven hours, 
And uh, a lot of us didn't want to use the porta potties because of COVID. I mean, yeah. that was a wild ride. And I remember getting there and some, um, you know, one of the clowns, I won't say what party they were from, uh, were mocking us wearing masks and he had a ba- paper bag over his head. Yeah. And yeah. it was, it was like, really? So, and anyways. that was a problem at the arena too. We had Democrats, we had Republicans, and then we had those Republicans who refused to wear a mask. They had to be seated and had to be kept separate from the rest of the group. And yeah, that was quite a time. But that time it was like going to the drive-in and having the movie never end. It just <laughs> heaven <laughs> help us. Yeah, and um, I, I will just say I won't I won't go into detail, but I will just say that there was a run on Depends that day. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, people didn't want to use the port of what they said. No, so. no, I know it was. <laughs> I'm looking at the the session from last year, and now we're going into to 2024. And many of us feel like it's much different. It's much more. There's much more bipartisanship. It's much more respectful. Um, what's your thought about that? I totally agree because both parties have to come together. And uh, I think Speaker Packard has done a great job of reaching out to Matt, our Democratic leader. And I think Matt has done a great job talking and communicating with uh, Sharon Packard. And as Sharon told me just a little while ago, he says, I've really gotten to like Matt. You know, we get along very well. And the communication is so critical. Uh, Democrats picked up a seat in Northwood that the Republicans really thought would go to them. And uh, there's two more elections anyway coming up. And... uh, to see what happens as we move forward if we end up with a tie in the House and what could happen. Are Democrats even up by one? What could happen? So that's going to be interesting. What do you think about uh, two, at least, I, I don't know if it's two or three now, Democrats who have uh, stated they're now independents. Do you have any thoughts on that? I know we had one one of our members from Milford the other day say that she is now going to be an independent. And, um, and I, that's an individual's choice. And in my now almost 20 years in the house i've seen where that's happened before where people have said no i don't want to belong to either party but i think those that left our caucus on important votes in the house will still be with us and uh, you know that's a decision they had to make it's going to make it difficult for bills they want to pass because they won't have one caucus supporting what they're doing but if that is a decision they i guess it's for them to decide and it's for their the people in their district to decide when they come up for re-election if they, I elected you as a Democrat or I elected you as a Republican because I felt you shared my values. Now maybe you don't. And uh, yeah, but it's it's a question of choice. It's And it's also very difficult, or, or I should say more difficult to win as an independent because you don't have the support of your party. You don't get... Um, you don't get the information that we get. You don't get um, the access to constituents and voters that 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 those of us in a party get. So it does does make it much more difficult to win. We had a very good member from the House from Pittsfield last session. He was a committee chair, did a wonderful job. He was a, a center right Republican, part of the old guy, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, Walter Peterson branch of the Republican Party. And he couldn't run again as a Republican because of what he felt the flaws in his own caucus and he ran as an independent and he got just walloped. It was was so bad to see him go, but you're right. People in New Hampshire just don't want to vote for a third party candidate in any election. And uh, they they want to see that party label. There there was um, 
there was an effort related to the, what are, we're talking about now, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is the the citizens for Belknap County, um, with the um, who got together after Gunstock. And for people who don't know what happened, there were some people, some legislators who were who were thought of as as extremists who wanted to take Gunstock away from the state and privatize it. And uh, Gunstock almost went down at one point. Governor Sununu um, criticized them and said, these are not these are not Republicans, these are extremists. So these citizens banded together and found, formed a bipartisan group, a large bipartisan group. And they said, we're going to support Democrats, we'll support Republicans, we'll support independents of either side of the party, but we will not support extremists. And they were very successful. They were able to eliminate six extremists from the legislature, which I saw as a very positive thing. And, and what do you think about that? Well, you know, especially we look at Belknap County, and I, I don't know offhand how big their delegation is for the number of reps from that county, but it can't be more than maybe 20, 24, 25. Uh, and for them to take out six. And, and of course, the members did it to themselves. I mean, they actually had closed down Belknap. They, they weren't even sure they could open for the ski season. Um, it was just, it was their own vendetta against uh, Gunstock. And the people said, okay, we'll tolerate some stuff, but enough is enough. And now you get, you know, it's affecting the money being raised by the county through Gunstock. It's affecting people that come to our area to ski there. Now you're just being stupid. And we're not going to tolerate it anymore. And they put out the flyers and they uh, endorse certain candidates that were running in the next election. And uh, you're right. Uh, and those are people that are entrenched in strong Republican districts like Belknap, uh, Belmont. And they said, no, enough is enough. And you see that at times in the House. You'll see somebody that will go too far. And the voters, you think, gee, do people even pay attention to House races? They do. And they, you know, and they see the foolishness in Washington. And they say, we don't want to see that in New Hampshire. You know, we, we have pride in our legislature. We have pride in what you do. When you start going too far, either extreme, we don't we don't want that. And I feel myself, New Hampshire is center left on social issues, maybe center right on fiscal issues, but they're somewhere in the middle. The pendulum doesn't go far, either left or right, stays in the middle. And that's where I think New Hampshire wants us to be. Yeah, I, I, I'm hopeful for that. I live in a county that um, has a number of ex extremists in power. I won't name them, but um, it's been very difficult, particularly as a delegation member to the county. Um, and I, I will say that on commerce, one of the reasons that it was so difficult um, the last session is is some of these extremists I felt were very disruptive on, on our committee. There were three people I think who left our committee who were either um, voted out or they lost their elections. And it's made a huge difference. Um, we're very civil to each other. Um, Paul Terry um, was somebody who I I was very cautious about, shall we say. I sit next to him now. I love him. I mean, I disagree with him on everything, but, you know, we get along, we laugh, and that's a good thing, you know? Yeah, and it's the way it should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I broke a gavel one time. I cracked the handle. Uh, one of the members, former member who's no longer in the house from Gosstown, um, got up and said something on the floor that was so outrageous and it, it was derogatory to a group of people and when I called him out of order I banged the gavel and I hit it till I cracked the whole handle but yeah we had people like that and, I, and we don't see it this much this this session um 
and I think people realize we're so close. We got to be careful what we say and, uh, you know, walk that path, to, you know, together to get through the session. Now you had, you had mentioned that, um, that the former speaker, Bill O'Brien, um, made some threats that if you didn't, that if you supported Sean Jasper for speaker, which you did, that, um, he would follow through on some threats. So you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, 2012, we lost the House again. The Republicans took the majority, and Bill O'Brien, the former Speaker, was running again for Speaker. And um, about four days before our session to elect the Speaker, Sean Jasper came in to see me. And he said, Steve, I'm thinking about challenging Bill O'Brien for the Speakership. Would you tell your caucus to vote for me? And I said, well, I never tell our caucus how to vote. I'll tell them who I'm voting for and why, and I'm going to vote for you but it's up to them. But I said, you got my support. So it got to back to me two days later from a Democrat who did a TV show in Nashville with Bill O'Brien. And after that public access, and after the show, he said to this Democrat, he said, you tell Shortliffe, I'm going to get elected speaker. I got the votes. I hear he's helping John Jasper beat me and tell him he will have no parking space on any state property. You'll have to find his own parking place. And there was something else about a committee assignment. And he said, he said, let him know that. He better knock off what he's doing because there will be retribution. And Sean came in third. And then on the next vote, I dropped out and I asked the House to please vote. I was supporting Sean. And they had a caucus. And I saw Sean sitting on a bench after the Republican caucus. And he looked so dejected. He said, Steve, I'm not going to win this. He said, I think we're both in hot water. And he was, because so, he really got beat up in his own caucus by O'Brien calling him a traitor and all this stuff. And we had two more votes. And then Sean won by four votes. And, and I still remember Bill O'Brien going out the back door of the house in disgust. But, and I had some, Democrats and party leadership said, you made a mistake supporting him. You should have let O'Brien win. And then two years later, we were taking the House. And I said, you know, we're not there for the politics. It's the things we get done. And I only asked one thing, uh, Sean. I said, I'm only going to ask you for one favor if you, when you get elected speaker. He goes, what is it? I said, we got Obamacare coming up, the Health Affordable Health Act. Will you give me your word? If we shake hands that you won't do anything to jeopardize that bill. And he put his hand out and he goes, Steve, you got my word. I won't do anything to kill that. It'll rise and fall on its own merits. And that six months later, that bill came up on the floor. And we had the vote to pass it. And of course, Democrats, we support it, but we're in the minority. It was a tie vote. And everyone's looking at Sean Jasper. And without waiting us two seconds, he said, in the speaker votes, I and bangs the gavel and it passed by that one vote. And for that vote alone, it was worth what we did. But the fact that Sean, he's a Republican, he's conservative, but he cares about the House. He cares about the people we represent. He cares about the traditions of the House. And uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't survive two more years of Bill O'Brien. New Hampshire couldn't. And the people that would suffer under his speakership. So it, it just I'm seeing so many parallels to what's going on in the House. Right. I mean, at that time in the House with um, McCarthy being perceived as a weak leader. And uh, when the uh, and I, I'm going blank on the person who was serving as interim. The first thing he did was take Nancy Pelosi yeah. out of her office. I mean, that's Hayes, just, uh, McKay, that's, uh, McHenry, I think his name okay, is. But that's just yeah. childish Petty. stuff. 
It's real petty. And, and Sonny Hoya, like, who's also the former deputy speaker and had a, had a small office, he took his office and changed the locks uh, before Speaker Pelosi could get back from the funeral uh, in California to take to get her stuff out of the office. They changed the locks on her. I mean, so petty, so that, petty. That is that is actually really a disgrace. So I, I I'm going to ask you two more questions, and one okay. of them we're going to go to the lighter side. Um, okay. <laughs> Can you remember one or or one or two of the more, more comical things that happened while you were serving as speaker? Yeah, I can think of one thing, especially, um, I didn't think it was so comical at the time, is when uh, we were in joint session, I just got elected speaker, and I had only been at one session when we elected the Secretary of State and the Treasurer and other business of the House. And so I was a little nervous being speaker and uh, Governor Sununu was being sworn in for a second term. And I was told they're going to go point to me uh, when Channel 9 went live so I could start because uh, it was being broadcast live. And so they went to me and I said, ladies and gentlemen, His Excellency, the governor of New Hampshire, John Sununu. And uh, the governor walked up and he goes, my name is Chris. And of course, I'm looking at his dad who's sitting in front of me, smiling, thinking this is great. And um, for about six months after, every time, and I used to meet with the governor once a week as speaker, and he'd say, you know, my name is Chris. I said, I know, governor, I know, I know, yeah, I know. Did he and do it people, in a lighthearted way or not really? Yeah, somewhat. He always had a smile on his face. I assume he meant it to be lighthearted, but <laughs> everybody laughed. And uh, when I think back, okay, I guess it was. Uh, and I guess the other thing is uh, our first uh, joint session, we elected Secretary of State. And uh, that was a very closely fought election uh, before um, uh, Bill Gardner and um, Colin Van Austin. And we had our rules. It was uh, one person to nominate each one and then two people to second. And um, that went fine. And then my senator, Dan Feltus, got up and said, I move that we allow the two candidates to come, now come to the floor. Uh, and I said, well, your motion's out of order. Our rules, our practice and precedent and the rules agree to are just those three people to speak, not the candidates themselves. And he said, I challenge the ruling of the chair. And to be challenged as a new speaker by your own Democratic senator from Concord, people laughed. They couldn't believe that my own senator was challenging my rule, but it was upheld by the party. I thought after that was kind of funny to have. Who would have thought my senator, my Democratic senator, uh, would challenge me? But it worked out well. I, I just also thinking about that. I just want to give a shout out to Paul Smith, our clerk, um, the House clerk, because he's uh, he's an amazing parliamentarian. I mean, I, and he's one of I think he's considered one of the top in the country. Absolutely. He trains other other people how to do this, and um, he he does a good job. When he was up for election, when I was speaker. There was talk among some Democrats of getting some to challenge him, to knock him off. And I said, Paul, if the Democrats bring up someone they want to nominate for your job, I'll put your name in nomination. I said, you've been fair to me. You've done a good job. You're right down the road. That's all I've asked of you. And you've done that and maybe a little bit more. And I said, I've got complete respect for you. And uh, we don't want to make this a partisan thing on the, on, on the clerk's job. Yeah, I think he, he, has, he has support on both sides of the aisle. Now he's yeah. so well liked on both sides that he's he, yeah. nothing would right. get him out. Right, right. Yeah. 
So my last question, um, President Biden recently said that we're seeing a battle between democracy and extremism. Do you see any parallels in New Hampshire to that statement? Yeah, and I think I think we see parallels in history. You know, uh, in the 1840s and 50s, we had the know-nothings. They were anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant. We had a know-nothing governor in New Hampshire. Um, and we, we've seen it with other groups throughout the years, but never to this intensity. The respect for institutions seems to be fading away. Uh, you know, that's what I mean, you know, myself and Sharon Packett and Sean Jasper, you know, I guess we're part of the old guard, but we have a true love for the house and the body. And uh, we have people coming in now that is so far uh, in the extreme. And it's about their agenda, what's not good for the people we serve. And, and you know, this politics is fine, but politics is what gets us into the house. But what the people want to see is policy once you get there. They don't want to hear your rants and your raves and your attacks on others. And it's like my dad used to say, there are some people that can only beat the, bring themselves up by tearing other people down. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. And we're seeing that in the house. And, uh, and it troubles me. I know it troubles people on both sides of the aisle to see that extremism creeping in. Um, you know, who would have think we have a president, a candidate for president, who's got 91 indictments. He's got a civil suit now going on. Uh, we're going to end up with a $250 million fine. And he's leading in the polls in, in several states, including New Hampshire. That's just, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. And he's thumbing his nose at the judges, you know, with uh, outrageous statements that put the staff in danger. And this is the leading candidate. It's kind of bizarre. Not kind of. It's crazy. It's not. It's It really is. And it's, uh, and it's all mostly fundraising. It's all about boosting himself to that element of their party. Uh, that just seemed to thrive, you know, that they love this victimhood that he's presented to them. And I'm surprised some of these judges haven't held him in contempt, maybe not incarceration, but at least a fine. Uh, they've tolerated so much from him, and he knows that he could go a little bit further than the average citizen because of the position he held. But it, it's a sad example, and it inspires others to try to mimic what he's doing. So are you optimistic about the future for, let's say, we, we have one more year, we have 2024. What uh, You think it's going to be a good year and, and after the election in 24? It's going to be a busy year. I was talking to the speaker the other day. We've got something like 720 bills, which is a lot for the second half. We've got 200 plus retained bills. Plus, we'll probably get about 250 bills from the Senate. And so it could be for some long sessions to get that work done. And a lot, a lot of frivolous bills. There's one to allow people to have kangaroos as pets. Are you serious? Another, yeah, no, really. Yeah, another bill, uh, the correct pronunciation of the name of the city of Concord in the state of New Hampshire is a bill. And it's like, oh, please, you know. I did not hear about the kangaroo. I saw that there are two bills relative to circumcision. And I thought to myself, so now we're going to be legislators, we're going to be physicians, and we're going to be spiritual leaders. I can't do all that. I don't know about you, no, Steve. I can't yeah, do all yeah, that. Please, I have limitations. I realize that. <laughs> and uh, that's beyond my scope. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I think it'll be a good session. Uh, we just got to stay focused, uh, not try to score on each other. And just kind of work together and work in harmony. You know, I ran for speaker again. Somebody told me, a Democrat, I can't vote for you because you're too nice to Republicans. 
And I said, well, it's the way I am. And, uh, but we got to be nice to each other. You know, it, it's, it's the only way anything's going to get accomplished. And that's the bottom line, what we do for the people in New Hampshire. Well, Steve, in closing, I'll just say you are always a class act. I always enjoy seeing you. I want to thank you so much for being here today. I think this was a really good conversation. Well, and, thank you um, for inviting me. Yep. And I, I it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. Um, I will see you in Concord very soon. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Anita. It was great speaking with Steve about the sausage making that happens at the Statehouse, which brings us to a periodic segment here on Digging In. Each segment, in addition to hearing from policymakers at the Statehouse, I'd like to give you a peek at the sausage making as it happens, and it doesn't always happen when the legislature is in session. So welcome to the segment we're calling Political Putts of the Week. If you don't know what a putz is, it's someone who is engaging in tomfoolery. Putzing around means that you are engaged in unproductive activities. New Hampshire politicians are gaining ground on New Jersey when it comes to political corruption. While Senator Bob Menendez has made national news by keeping wads of cash stuffed into envelopes for emergencies instead of keeping packs of cup of soup on hand like the rest of us, New Hampshire is now in the game for the creation of some of the most notable scandals. In case you missed it, Troy Murner, who we thought was a representative and a selectman of Lancaster, turned out to be living in a different community that is not in his district. Murner has been living in Carroll, New Hampshire, which is 15 miles from Lancaster since August of 2022. And apparently, this is a hard no-no. Now, Murner has known for months that the Attorney General's office has been investigating him, but the former representative said, fudge you, and continued on with this scam. Once the investigation became public, Murner was forced to resign. There are 400 state representatives. Do you mean to tell me that not one soul knew about Murner's deception? This has the potential to be on a par with Watergate. What did they know and when did they know it? And were any of them aware that it's appropriate to resign when you muck up this badly and break the law? What might have been the motivation for murder to stay on and for there to be a circle of silence? It just might have been due to the fact that the balance of power in the New Hampshire House is tighter than Kim Kardashian in a pair of spandex pants. With Murner's resignation, the House now has 198 Republicans, 197 Democrats, and two independents. How did Murner help his party by failing to resign? His illegal votes were responsible for several new episodes of Kill Bill, including one which would have repealed New Hampshire's 24-week abortion ban and another which would have required students to attend private school for a year before they could apply for the Education Freedom Account program. Speaker Packard voted to create a tie on these votes, serving to send these bills to the legislative graveyard. While Senator Menendez will likely win the Oscar for his role in having the most chutzpah in thumbing his nose at the law, I predict that Troy Murner will be nominated for best supporting role of pretending to be a legitimate state representative. Former Representative Peter Ho Burling said recently that the tiny majority in the House doesn't want people to know what they knew and when they knew it, a sentiment that was echoed by Mark Hounsell of Conway. One of the bills decided by Murner's illegal vote was HB 626, which would have moved the controversial school voucher program to run under the administration of the State Department of Education. Democrats tried to revive the bill after Murner resigned, but the effort died in a surprise 
not really, partisan vote before the Rules Committee. Burling has declared that the state AG's office was non-compliant with the right to know law 91A. My bet will be that this dirty laundry will be put to bed before it's washed and before we get any meaningful responses to these questions. Thank you for listening to Digging In. I want to thank Representative Steve Shirtliff for joining me. Please join me for my next episode when I speak to House Rep Wendy Thomas, who shares her very personal story about the forever chemical PFAS that is impacting the health of citizens throughout the state. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends and family and give a shout out to Digging In on social media. Digging In.